Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. Start off, I want to welcome oh, welcome to the Mind Vine, our virtual podcast. Uh, during the pandemic, we're, we're uh, set up in, in different locations, and I want to introduce uh, Chris Bovey, and my co-host is Daryl Mathers, and uh, we have a very, very special guest, very fitting for Mental Health Awareness Week, uh, Dr. Paul Kurdiak, who's the clinical lead for the Mental Health and Addiction Center of Excellence, uh, also a psychiatrist and, and clinician scientist, uh, medical director for performance improvement at CAMH, and also director of health outcomes uh, performance edu- uh, evaluation for the Institute Mental Institute of Mental Health Policy and Research, and wow. that's just part of it. So now the show's over. We don't have any time for questions, but but anyway, I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Kurdiak, for joining us today during this special week. Uh, oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So first of all, uh, obviously you're you're working through this pandemic, much like uh, healthcare workers, you know, across the well across the globe. Um, I want to, before I ask you our first question, I just want to say a shout out to all the healthcare workers who are, uh, you know, doing such great work during this and seeing us through this as a community, as a, as a province, as a country. And for us, you know, being housed on Ontario shores, thank you very much to our, our people back at our hospital who are there every day caring for our patients, much like uh, other mental health hospitals uh, in the province. So with that out of the way, um, um, first of all, how are you doing? How are you coping with uh, this dramatic change in both, both your professional and I'm assuming your personal life? Uh, yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, well, I, I think I'm, I'm experiencing the same sort of dramatic uh, impact on, on my life and work life as, as, as anybody else. Uh, I feel incredibly fortunate that I have this role uh, with, uh, you know, with this new agency. Um, it's, it keeps me busy, uh, uh, and I feel like you know it gives me gives me really something to focus on that that feels meaningful. And uh, but but every day, I mean, as you pointed out, every day I feel for you know hearing all the stories about people you know struggling to work while they're trying to take care of their kids, you know, people losing work. Uh, so I just feel fortunate, but but. As well as feeling fortunate, I feel a, a cr- tremendous sense of urgency about having to work with, you know, partners like Ontario Shores to to be ready for what everybody's talking about the second wave of the pandemic. And so, um, uh, so you know, I, I would say, <laughs> fortunate, mildly stressed, and uh, personally and. Um, Significantly stressed provincially. <laughs> statement. So, so we've gone through Ontario's gone through some really radical transformative change in health, and so uh, you know we've got the formation of Ontario Health rolling in, you know, uh, Health Quality Ontario and Cancer Care Ontario. Um, maybe if you could help a little bit for sort of the general public or the layman, the, the creation of the Center of Excellence for the Mental Health and Addiction Center of Excellence. Can you explain a little bit about? what its mandate and role is and how it fits into health? Yeah, sure. Thanks for the question. So the, so yeah, j- just to further uh, your description. So previously, uh, you know, we had 
uh, Cancer Care Ontario, which was much more than cancer for the general public. It oversees uh, standards and, and delivery of care for not only cancer, but, but for renal care and, and lots, of other, lots of other sort of uh, um, work that they did uh, for the healthcare system. Wait time strategy was, uh, was Cancer Care Ontario. Uh, and then you have Health Quality Ontario, which is uh, more of a quality improvement shop for the for the province. And then you have the Lens, which are the 14 Lens overseeing healthcare in in the 14 different regions. All of that is now in one roof, and that happened with uh, with with the Ford government. There's uh, and and in addition, there's other things being pulled into the agency. But there's one new. Uh, agency, and that's uh, what you mentioned, the Mental Health and Addiction Centre of Excellence. I, I think this is incredibly important uh, for our sector, our mental health and addiction sector, because it positions uh, an agency uh, within Ontario Health in a way that um, signals a kind of equity and importance of, of mental health and addictions as a priority uh, in parallel with the rest of the healthcare sector. Um, so symbolically, I think it's really important that, that the agency now exists. Uh, and really, uh, I mean, if you think about um, what Cancer Care Ontario has done for the cancer system, I mean, we, we forget because it's, it's uh, you know, it feels like a long time ago, but cancer used to be a highly stigmatized illness and, and uh, the cancer care system used to be quite a disaster and we, it was all distributed. There were no standards. We didn't measure outcomes and you, you, you could get very different treatment and very different outcomes depending on where you live in the province. And, you know, 30 years later or 25 years later, uh, cancer uh, care in Ontario is amongst the best in the world uh, because of this systematic, uh, oversight um, and really that's that's what we intend to do uh, with with the agency is emulate the kinds of work and and it's hard for the general public to understand but uh, if we if we t extend the cancer uh, analogy um, you know when somebody's uh, first of all uh, cancer is usually detected in primary care settings you know your family doctor you go something feels wrong and there's some initial tests and it's like uh oh there's there, it looks like there's cancer here and then you kind of get swept into the cancer system and then there's like evidence-based testing to figure out what your stage is which is another way of saying you know how severe is your cancer and then your treatment slots in in an evidence-based way depending on what stage you are and then you, you're followed through, you're constantly monitored as to how you're responding to treatment and, and things happen uh, in an evidence-based and measurement-based way. And if we think about what happens in, in the mental health sector, uh, well, when I, I work in you know, downtown Toronto emergency department, a psychiatric emergency department, and what I hear from people in Ontario is uh, either I don't know where to go uh, or I couldn't wait. Uh, and so that to me tells me that there really is no meaningful system uh, for mental health uh, care in Ontario, uh, certainly not uh, in, in the way that we would think about cardiac care or cancer care or other areas of the healthcare system. So, uh, so it's, a, it's a daunting task to think about how to create systems of care delivery for mental health and addictions. And I think we're going to have to be um, quite focused at the beginning in certain areas so that we can actually achieve some of the things we hope to achieve. I don't, 
the cancer care system wasn't built in a year. It took, you know, 25 years to get where we are today. And I think that, but this is the first step. Uh, and it's, uh, and we feel it's a really important step. And, uh, and, and it's, it's a step that, uh, it's not just about the agency. The agency we feel is, um, uh, a coordinating center that, that plugs in all the leadership that leadership that exists in Ontario shores and, and, and elsewhere. And just thinking about the cancer care model and, and how it may relate to uh, mental health in Ontario, we're so geographically uh, spread out across the province. So I wouldn't even say that. Sorry. We have, obviously we have highly populated areas in Ontario that are fairly close together. And then we have this wide range of rural areas. And so stigma is obviously a challenge as it was for cancer you know, decades ago. As you look towards maybe some of the challenges, um, how is how are we going to overcome geography? How are we going to overcome stigma? How like how are we going to kind of um, create a system that's more mental health centric? Yeah, so so the the stigma piece, uh, all there's stigma and then there's geography in the context of access. I think there there are two two sides to your question. And I think the stigma piece, uh, we're already seeing it uh, un unravel uh, in, in, in heartening ways. Uh, so one of, the, one of the aspects of my work is, is at um, ICES, which we, we use big population-based data to monitor trends. And uh, we see very clearly a generational change in the likelihood that individuals will seek help, and more specifically, uh, we look at um, rates of mental health and addictions related emergency department visits by age and the 16 to 24 year old age group is seeking help at a far higher rate than those that are older and they're sort of going forward. So I, I think, you know, I have two kids, 18 and 20, they don't experience stigma of mental illness in the same way that, that I do, and certainly not the same way that my parents did. Uh, so I think that there is a generational shift in stigma. It's an interesting question about whether that plays out uh, r rurally. Uh, in other words, is, is, stigma, uh, is the stigma of mental illness different in a large urban setting compared to a rural one? I don't think we know the answer to that, but I'm guessing the, the answer is yes. Uh, so there are probably some health promotion activities that should be associated with that. But the geography piece is, is, a, is, a, is a tougher nut to crack because um, I think stigma is just, it's just happening anyways. I believe we're in the midst of this public mental health moment that's kind of not going away. Um, but geography is, 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 is really challenging. And, and um, so the two things I would say about that is, is that uh, because the agency is within Ontario Health, uh, some of the public may be aware of, of the Ontario health teams and the ways in which these Ontario health teams are being explicitly laid out in regions of, of the uh, province. So we are keeping a very close eye on the evolution of, of uh, the Ontario health teams and how they are being distributed regionally so that we can capitalize on on those sort of access points for care more generally and piggyback onto the many mental health uh, initiatives that we have. But the other uh, big piece, and, and this would probably ring true for, for, um, for your hospital, certainly CAMH and any other uh, mental health service provider, 
this pandemic has uh, put the pedal to the metal as it relates to shifting to virtual care, right? So uh, I, you know, we've been monitoring my ICS team and monitoring uh, the use of telepsychiatry to increase access to areas where there's very little in the way of mental health services, and it's been pretty slow and it's it's a kind of a drop in the bucket but I don't think we're going back uh, after the pandemic and so I one of the things that I'm really looking forward to and excited about as it relates you know the silver lining of a pandemic is that we that it may have forced innovation in ways that can capital that we can capitalize on to address some of the issues you're talking about which is you know we may not you may not have to persist with virtual care in in uh, Whitby or Oshawa or Toronto, but the the capacity may persist so that we can serve you know uh, areas to the north uh, and and other and, and some of our more agricultural uh, centers as well. Now, Dr. Kurjak, I know in your even before the Center of Excellence, you were um, you had a good lens on the mental health addiction system and was an advocate for things like you know. Um, provincially funded sort of early intervention and, and care um, right up to standardization. So what, what do you think are the biggest gaps in the system? Because we do have, again, there's a multitude of mental health and addictions agencies. Yeah. Um, when you walk in the door, you may get something different from each one. And, and how hard is it to, you know, to bring that together? And what are maybe some of the other bigger challenges that you face? Yes, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, and I think that, um, I think that there's a, there's, there's a tendency when, in the midst of, of these kinds of crises to sort of uh, respond reactively. Um, and, and, you know, people are talking about, you know, this pending mental health crisis, but the, the problem is we've always had a mental health crisis, not so much because, you know, mental health, like the, the prevalence of mental illness has been pretty stable, but we just don't have a system to support demand prior to the pandemic, and it's only going to get worse. So, um, so you know, thinking about well, we should be doing, you know, X or Y, and we should be funding X or Y. Uh, you know, what we've been thinking about is, um, to your point, on the one hand, you know, there is a significant amount of funding each year that goes towards mental health and addictions. It's not enough but it is significant. And there's about $4 billion a year that the Ministry of Health pays for mental health care in Ontario. And I don't think anybody would say that, that, uh, that we have a good read on how that, uh, how that money is spent, what outcomes we're achieving as a result of that. So I think um, step one is to wrap our heads around where that money is going relative to need. So we probably should get a provincial read of need and then figure out where the investments are going and then do the tough job of realigning investments with need. That's at a very macro level. I think that's step one. Step two is, um, is, is related to the other aspect of your question, which is really good, is, um, and, and, and related to the, the specific uh, aspect of, you know, people might get something very different no matter where they went. And there, are, there is critical... What, what I would call core infrastructure, no matter what you decide to do, that we need to build. So when we talk about regions in Ontario, we should probably think about some sort of centralized access structure or function uh, in each region that allows people to have a one-stop shop 
that then distributes uh, individuals uh, who have mental health and addictions needs to regional care. And that does a lot of things. One is that like the cancer system, it allows the opportunity to systematically vet what the individuals need and make sure that they go where they need to go versus this scattershot approach that we have now where people may go nowhere, they may go where they don't need, they may get more than they need. So right now, so we don't, that, that's the first step of the system is, is this centralized point where, uh, where you know, people, we, we really do a good job in a standardized way of figuring out what people need and then we work with them to get to where they need. And that, that also serves a second purpose, which is it allows us this centralized opportunity to collect information on our regional population so that over time we can learn the needs uh, going forward and we can learn how we're doing in terms of getting them to the where that they need to do the course correction and resources. And then the third, the third piece is whatever we do in specific areas, like right now we have uh, a provincial um, it's now called Mindability, the Structured Psychotherapy Initiative that, that Ontario Shores is participating in. Um, whatever we do, and that's one of the big investments that we're, that we're working on, um, we are mindful not only of you know, standards and quality and good quality improvement processes around that specific initiative, but we're also mindful of using these initiatives and the momentum associated with them to build that core infrastructure so that when we expand MindAbility to the province, start investing in these centralized access hubs so that when MindAbility is up and running, we can use those centralized access points for the next thing, which might be addictions care or early psychosis intervention or, or what have you. I don't know if that makes any sense, but there's yeah, sort of like... So do you think, um, not to put you on the spot or that, but when we look at the system of, of places like KMH and that, do you see their, their role or specialty role for that central intake to support? We've moved to these sort of Ontario health teams regional, but then you have these provincial or larger players. That, do you see a role for them in that kind of expert intake piece or how do they fit in? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Uh, so I, I think that, uh, I think that it's the, that, that centralized access role will change. And, and even the, the process of it will be regionally different. So in, in more, uh, in less sparsely populated areas, it may be more virtual, right? Like, cause you, cause you don't want people to have to travel all over the place. Whereas in urban settings, you know, you know, when people took transit, uh, you know, people can get people can get to places. So uh, I think right now uh, we are uh, agnostic about um, about where the where and the how, but we are very clear about what what needs to happen. We just uh, I think there's too many moving pieces in terms of the evolution of the Ontario health regions. There's no OHTs, and we want to work in lockstep with them. So I'm. Uh, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of dodging your question. That's right. Uh, no, it still uh, works. But I feel yeah. like it's, 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 a bit, it's a bit too early. I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a pragmatic combination of what resources are there and where is the rest of the healthcare sector going. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to uh, silo mental health and addictions from the rest of the healthcare sector uh, by creating parallel systems. That's both inefficient and it's, and it's historically done our sector a disservice. Just one last sort of follow-up, Daryl, sorry. Um, there, the trick that balances, and you, you know this as well, and I've talked to Minister Elliott about this, so you've got uh, the system saying, release money, we want to, you know, there is a need, and you know there's a need for more service, but at the same time, 
you know, when they came out with the, the road plan or the mental health plan to, to ensure that those resources are being spent wisely. And how do you balance those two, you know, this urgent need, but building the system that makes sure the funds are going to the right place and, and, and getting sort of the best results for the, for the dollar? Yeah. So, so I think that that, that is uh, already emerging as, as our attention that, um, that, that, uh, that we feel like there's a, there's a short-term urgency that that there and, and there's a political need to uh, address those, uh, but as you're kind of implying, uh, the kinds of infrastructure course corrections that that we're talking about don't happen in months. They they happen over time. So I would say that um, the advantage of having an agency is that it, you know the the advocates will continue to go to their their MPPs who will continue to roll stuff up to uh, Minister Tabolo and Minister Elliott. Uh, but we have this agency who, who's steadfastly focused on the job at hand. Um, and, and, the, and, you know, the second piece uh, to that is that when you do do, um, when you do uh, go about making these targeted investments, that you that the sector works with the agency because we have the expertise and the resources to overlay a provincial measurement strategy. So to address the second point, which is even if you do go ahead with investments, how do you go about it in a way that's responsible? I mean, I think that's essentially what you're saying. How, how do you make sure that the taxpayers' money goes to good use? And uh, I would say that the healthcare workers. I don't know if you yeah, yeah, the Ontario Shores involved with that. The healthcare workers' COVID response is is a is an example of that. We, you know, in two weeks, we work with our partners, Ontario Shores being one of them, to create a system of self referral care for healthcare workers who've been uh, frontline workers who've been affected by uh, COVID with with respect to mental health and addictions. And one of the one of the critical things that the agency did was. Um, work with the partners to create a kind of a minimum rough data capture aspect so that we can monitor things weekly because we have no idea what demand will be like and, and, uh, and we want to be able to respond uh, accordingly so that, so that I mean, the, you don't want to do two things. You don't want to invest a ton and, and find out that there's no demand, uh, but you keep things going just because. Uh, and you don't and you don't want to miss uh, you don't want to miss a crisis. You don't want to announce something and have it uh, have it not meet needs. So, yeah. You you mentioned a, a little while ago just about the kind of the generational shift in terms of uh, the demand for mental health services and how that's going to continue. Yeah. And with any any monumental shift, uh, you're, you you need time and you need support from society. You, need, you know, it needs to be valued by society. So, in the midst of this like world that we're living in, where the 24-hour news cycle is COVID-19 and and the pandemic, how have you felt about where mental health has fit in in terms of the it being a um, discussed in the in the media or social media or among uh, you know, among friends or like where, how do you feel about where mental health has been in this larger conversation that is the pandemic? Yeah, I'd be interested to hear what, 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 what your opinion of this is, but I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I think. Um, I think even before the pandemic, uh, and if we take sort of a, uh, a geological scale, and I'm old enough to take geological scales. So I would say from the time I became a psychiatrist to now, 
the degree to which mental health issues are covered in the media has increased exponentially. Uh, I would say that when I finished residency, be, being a psychiatrist was a source of shame within the medical community, and uh, and you hardly heard about any anything related to mental health. Now it's very common to see see stories on a weekly basis, uh, sometimes reaching the front page of, of major media outlets uh, and uh, covering covering that. That said, uh, we are definitely seeing issues uh, um, within the agency, within the center of excellence um, that suggest uh, a misalignment of attention. And, and one, one example would be... Um, you know, there's a, there's a very, within the, the pandemic, you know, initially there was a real uh, urgency around critical care and ICUs. And then we realized, the, the province realized that um, long-term care was, was where uh, the crisis was actually occurring. Um, and we found it very difficult to, uh, to ensure, at least at the beginning, and there's been a course correction since, to include, you know, congregate living that is mental health and addictions related, like group homes, supportive housing, you know, any any um, uh, pandemic related issues that have, that have implications for long term care also impact these congregate living areas. So that, that in other words, they are they just they're just like long term care, except that they're housing uh, vulnerable individuals with serious mental illnesses. So that's an example, sort of right now where. There, we felt that there was a misalignment that that um, that that we weren't included in, in a conversation, even though the subject or the issue was very relevant to to that aspect of of the kind of work that's involved in our sector. But and then the last thing I would say is that I feel like there is a lot of discussion about. Um, about you know the stress that this pandemic has had, the long-term economic consequences, and the and you know, and it comes out in weird ways, like the concern about domestic violence, the impact of of um, uh, the impact of uh, you know unemployment, and what that's gonna what what toll that's gonna take on mental illness and addictions. I mean, we have we have um, people who have time are laid off and. Uh, and you know, uh, LCBOs and beer stores are essential services. I mean, that's uh, you know, for those who are sort of sub-threshold having a drinking problem, that that's a that's a concern of mine. That there's where that this is ripe for stress plus time plus access. For those who had sort of problematic drinking now, might be in more trouble. So these are just things that I'm thinking about and, and worried about. But I, I feel like the media is 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 there, and I think that it's going as as the as the actual infection-related aspects of this pandemic subside, I think we're going to see a shift more towards the mental illness uh, consequences of this. But what do you guys think? I, I would, so on the media side, I've actually been impressed um, with yeah. how quickly the media kind of took it as this is going to have an impact. Like the health implications are are more than just uh, COVID-19 and and that particular illness. So, I, you know, it's been interesting to watch that and it grow. I mean, I think it's still, and I'm sure Chris has a similar opinion, is it's still very much um, an acceptance of mild to moderate mental health issues, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you know, I think the, the people with more critical illnesses, 
they're not um, benefiting from any stigma reduction in this situation, but it, it was, for me, it was, it's been enjoyable or at least rewarding to see like, hey, they, without any prompting, they have picked up on the fact that this is going to impact people's mental health. Yeah. I would, Sorry, go ahead. No, I would agree. And I, I've always said kind of the difference between cancer, you know, like the more ill you get, the more empathy you have when you have cancer. But with, with mental illness, it's different. People seem to yeah. uh, have more empathy or understanding around anxiety or the mild things when it becomes schizophrenia or or something like that, then they have less empathy and understanding, so they're more stigma. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that is that is that is very true, and and that that goes down to the congregate living situation. I mean, those those are the individuals who are vulnerable that you're talking about that are being overlooked or at high risk. Yeah. Yeah. Just to follow Dr. up yeah, on so, that, sorry, sorry oh, Chris, sorry. just to follow up on that, just because just popped in my head, um, and this might be stretching a little further, but. Do you have concerns about uh, people who are losing people, losing loved ones during this time and unable to grieve like the way that they normally would? Like, is that something that uh, we should be looking out for, for our friends and family that may have lost somebody, whether it's COVID related or not during this time? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think that's one, uh, one aspect of many sort of remarkable pandemic related stressors uh, that, that we need to be concerned about. And, uh, and so, like, and, and, you know, I, I would say that, uh, I mean, often my, my head hurts when I think about the implications of the pandemic. I mean, you can, you can go down a million different rabbit holes and I, and what we've been really focusing on is how can we, um, how can we, uh, systematically monitor things, uh, uh, over time so that we can go after issues as they come up. And that's something that I'm really, so, so in other words, don't do, don't measure a point in time. And then like, because we can't predict how things are going to unfold. There's uh, you know, we have to go back to 1918 and the Spanish flu. And I can tell you that probably 2018 or 2020 looks a lot different than 1918 in terms of a healthcare system or social systems, et cetera. So there's no evidence to say, to God, help us, uh, help guide us as to how to respond. So I'm really thinking we need to be measuring on a really uh, iterative basis so that we can react when we see things and go after them systematically. I just wanted to close and maybe touch on something you had brought up a little earlier when you talked about housing and, and that. So the Center of Excellence, while it lives in health, we know success for people um, touches multiple um, ministries. So I'm wondering, you know, when we look at justice, housing, education, all those. How engaged provincially is the Center of Excellence with other ministries for solutions, whether it's ODSP and all those factors that really are going to determine success for individuals? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. And I would say that even before, uh, before the creation of the agency, um, in my role at ICES, one of the first things we did when we established our shop was to start going after uh, data from uh, MCCSS from the correction side of things, from education. The idea being that if you only look at mental health, which is what you're saying, if you only look at mental health from a health perspective, you are missing massive social determinants, consequences, and causes of mental illness so that you really have a sort of a thin wedge of understanding. Um, I, so I would say that um, historically, my sense is that when you get into issues that are interministerial, 
it, it complicates things uh, because you you have different budgets, different priorities, different political uh, settings. But I do feel as though that's getting better. Um, uh, and and uh, I can tell you that we are doing some work. So I'm I'm writing up a study now, looking at you know individuals in correctional settings and looking at their health health use. 70% of people in correctional centers have had some mental health or addictions related contact prior to their correctional setting. So to, to your point, these things are entirely interrelated. Uh, just think about ODSP and Ontario Works implications. And so, uh, yeah, I think, I think the, uh, for, for all, I mean, I think it's perhaps magnified in mental health uh, for our agency, but for all of the healthcare sector, uh, you know, we all know about, you know, basic inequities that play out in, in determinants of health that'll impact, impact health and mental health. So we are cognizant of that, but that's a complicated, uh, <laughs> it's a complicated piece of work, sure. but a great question. Well, thank you very much for joining us in the middle of the pandemic, but also it's mental health week. So, um, Thank you to everybody who works in mental health and who's been moving everything forward in the last uh, decade. I like, or probably a little longer than a decade. Chris and I have joined the mental health field around the same time, and our our experiences are very similar. It's gone from zero in terms of discussion to uh, now. You know, it's not uncommon to see it in a, in an in an article or being discussed even you know at the family table. So. Thank you very much for all you're doing to, to get us there and to get us further ahead. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks very much for having Thank me. It's a, it's a pleasure uh, chatting with you guys. Take care. Thanks Stay so safe. Much.